Hey, I hope you're doing well. This is the Solution Science Podcast, where I talk with world-leading innovators in the fields of energy, materials, biotechnology, agriculture, computer science, and much, much more. Today's guest was Dr. Robert Tirawat, who is a researcher at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in the U.S., And he talked with me about his research area of perovskite solar cells. We talked about the difference between these perovskite solar cells to commercially available solar cells today. And also discussed some of the research challenges that are ongoing in the field. That's all from me. I hope you enjoy. Hey Robert, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. If you could introduce yourself a little bit for the audience. Sure. Uh, My name is Robert Tirwat. I am a researcher for the National Renewable Energy Laboratory and my main area of research is going to be focusing on perovskite solar cells, looking to push the technology towards commercialization and evaluating stability of the recent advances for the uh, cells. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what I was interested in talking with you about today, is the perovskite. I've always wondered how to pronounce that. I've never heard anyone say it. I always, <laughs> in my head, I said it, calls it perovskite. But perovskite is sure. <laughs> um, you're the expert, so we'll go with perovskite. Did you say? Yes, perovskite. Yeah. Cool. Um, that's exactly what I wanted to speak about. So it's not a topic. It's a topic I always see. I always see it in the titles of papers, and I try mm-hmm. and try my best to understand. And I rarely get very far because I'm not in the field of energy or materials or anything like that. So I'm hoping you can kind of enlighten me and enlighten a few people listening to kind of what these uh, perovskite solar cells are and then how they kind of differ from the, I guess, traditional solar cells that people are using um, around and about nowadays. Sure. So uh, perovskites have received a lot of attention recently, mostly because of the advances that we've had in the technology. Uh, Just as a general kind of introduction, it's worth clarifying. So uh, perovskites is a little bit of a shorthand for what the technology is. Uh, A perovskite is actually an ABX3 crystal structure. So it would be equivalent to saying like, um, you know, face-centered cubic crystal structure. Um, but when you take that crystal structure with particular materials, you can make a, a solar cell or photovoltaic device, or even a, um, potentially a detector as well, like an x-ray detector. Um, and they have a lot of interesting properties that make them useful. Uh, so when we have this ABX3 crystal structure, basically you would have a, a divalent metal in the B position, so like lead two plus, um, coupled with a cation in the A position, so something like um, methyl ammonium, form of medinium, cesium, sometimes rubidium, and then for the X site, you would have typically a halide, uh, so iodine, bromine, or sometimes chlorine. So um, you can use different combinations at each of these sites. And that allows for tuning of the material properties. So you can use like uh, methyl ammonium and form of medinium, for example, at the A-site cation, um, or bromine coupled with iodine at the halide 
uh, side, the X site, and you can do things like change the band gap, which is kind of where the uh, material will turn on, as it were, for um, response to light. So you can tune the material and use it in different applications, for example, for tandem cells, where part of the cell will only absorb a certain uh, portion of the solar spectrum. If you put a, another cell or another material on top of that that responds to a different portion, now you can uh, actually capture energy over a wider portion of the spectrum and boost your efficiency and, and energy output. Okay, yeah. So you can kind of mix and match these different materials that are all kind of based on the same scaffold, and then you can absorb more of your light spectrum, essentially. Yeah, and you can do things um, by by changing the, the materials that you use. Uh, you can also potentially increase, you know, the stability of the material itself or um, introduce other properties. So one of the more common uh, recently used type materials, actually, we kind of refer to as the kitchen sink because we use three different uh, cations for the A sites, lead for the B sites, and um, bromine and iodine, so two halides on the X sites. Right, yeah, yeah. So what is the kind of main differences um, between these perovskite solar cells and commercially available solar cells that are out there at the moment? So the real nice thing about perovskites is that they are solution processed, um, which opens the ability to manufacture them to a whole different, uh, a lot of different processes. Um, you can do things like um, blade coating or slot die coating. So that's, if you kind of envision, you know, spreading jam on a piece of bread, you know, you've got a knife that pulls your jam across the bread. So in the same way, you can apply your precursor across a substrate and use a, a doctor's blade and it pulls across the substrate to do the deposition. It's a real easy, straightforward uh, method. You can use inkjet printing to deposit the material. You can use spray coating. Um, you oh. can do roll-to-roll -roll type processes. So uh, another nice thing is it's a thin, thin film technology. So you can actually apply it to flexible substrates. Um, so the myriad of ways that you can actually process a material are attractive because um, you can use inexpensive processing approaches. Uh, beyond that, another advantage of the perovskite uh, materials is that they are relatively uh, defect tolerant. Uh, so compared to something like uh, a silicon technology, for example, you need very pristine and very low defect type materials. Uh, and that also adds the burden of, you know, processing requirements to make sure that you are in a clean room and your the purity of your material is very high and your processes are tightly controlled. Uh, Profskites are a little bit more forgiving um, in that aspect. So that's one of the advantages of them. Um, and it's it's been a recent draw, as I said before. Um, so we've been researching for perovskite solar cells uh, in the past, you know, a little bit over 10 years or so. And we've seen huge gains in efficiencies going from single digit efficiency to, 
I think the recent record is um, 26% that was recently reported. So uh, a very quick increase on, you know, the improvements of efficiency as well as extending out the stability of the devices. Um, however, we are still a little bit lacking in, in that, and that's where a lot of the main focus is currently. Yeah, okay. So when the first point you mentioned about how the material is kind of easy to... Um, well, what, what would you describe that as? It's easy to spread, like to lay fabricate. on, to fabricate, right, yeah. Um, so it just kind of makes it easier to make the actual solar cells than um, the kind of commercially available stuff right now. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Right. Okay. Um, so, and your second point was that, um, the, about the efficiency. What uh, What is it that kind of makes up that efficiency number? Exactly what are we talking about when we say like 26% efficiency? Is that... Uh, so that's energy conversion. So right. um, that's comparing the incident light um, on the photocell compared to how much um, energy it's outputting. Okay. Yeah. In terms of voltage and current. And what kind of um, efficiencies are the commercially available solar cells getting comparatively? So, for example, um, one moment. So if we compare that to uh, like crystalline silicon, they're coming in at uh, about 27.6%. Uh, if we compare it against, let's see, do I have um, Cattell? So Cattell's coming in, it looks like 23.6%. Um, so we are getting kind of equivalent class efficiency. Um, but it's worth notice, uh, noting that the silicon has been in development since, you know, the late 70s or so. So they have decades of um, research that has gone into to reach those efficiencies. Mm, yeah. And you also touched on the kind of defect resistance. Does that mean that these sort of solar cells would have a longer lifespan? No, where that comes more into play is that um, if you have an imperfect material, you are not taking a hit on the efficiency. Right. right. Um, how that plays into the long-term stability is still a little bit more of an open question, but um, it's mostly an impact on the on the actual um, initial efficiency. Mm, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So. Um... If you kind of already have these efficiencies close to some of these other solar cell um, types, what's the sort of um, limiting factor for these becoming commercially available? Largely the stability. We, we are still working on um, developing intrinsically stable solar cells. Um, so to move towards commercial ability, uh, you really need high performance. So you need both the high efficiency and you need the long-term stability. Uh, and we have great, you know, we have 
improved our stability in orders and magnitudes in, in the past decades or so. But that's we're still at like kind of 5,000 hour demonstrations when really this technology needs to be stable for a 30 year sort of lifetime to be out in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the challenges around that are, again, we're, we need to be focused on intrinsic stability because you can, you can package certain things out. You can package out oxygen, you can package out humidity so that your perovskite solar cell doesn't see and react with water, for example, which a lot of cases can be problematic. But things you can't package out are, you know, lights and heat, uh, mostly, um, as well as, you know, biases uh, within the devices. Um, And all of those can lead to degradation of your films. Um, And that's, there's still research to be done in that field because um, how these devices break are are still a little bit um, unclear. Sometimes, you know, it's a question of, are, are you keeping things out or are you keeping things in? Because sometimes some of the, um, some of the atoms will devolve out of your perovskite material and you lose performance because now you, you don't have ex- exactly the same material that you started with. Right, um, right. So these are some of the challenges that we're, we're focused on right now. Okay. And what does the research into those kind of challenges look like? How do you go about um, trying to improve that stability? Uh, it's, it's actually quite challenging. It's, it's, it's a lot of, you know, trying new things and making new devices. Uh, part of the problems that we run into is that they are, prosthetics can be sensitive to analytical techniques. So whereas, uh, on another device, you might be able to do something like uh, XPS or, or you know, X-ray photospectroscopy, uh, where you can look at, you know, how your materials are changing. Those those analysis techniques will actually change your films a little bit, and so it's hard to get a good right. signal out. Um, so currently, we are we. We fabricate devices, we age them um, under light um, with elevated temperatures often, uh, typically in an enclosed environment such as a nitrogen flow cell. Um, and then we, we perform some sort of postmortem to gain whatever insight that, that we're able to. Right, right, yeah. So kind of making these new devices, does that involve new materials or new kind of arrangements of the already existing materials? A little bit of both. So the, you know, the prototypical uh, solar stack, you're going to have a transparent conducting oxide uh, where you'll put either, you can, you can do either way, a whole transporting layer, active layer, electron transporting layer and a top electrode, or you can invert those so uh, your electron is on the bottom um, active layer and whole transporting layer on the top. Um, So we can swap out those different layers um, to look at how they affect your efficiency and stability. Uh, We can change things like the additives that we use in the perovskite active layer uh, to modify the how the crystal forms uh, in the initial fabrication 
um, or to, for example, to get a more ideal morphology, for example, or um, a better interface between the two different layers. And all these things can affect uh, both your efficiency and your stability. Right. Yeah. What is the kind of so I, I've never seen sort of a diagram of an actual solar cell, or I probably have, but I don't remember it at the top of my head. Could you kind of describe to us what a solar cell actually is in like kind of layer by layer or um, like the actual design of a solar cell? Right. Uh, so it's a um, typically a PIN or an NIP stack so that, you know, again, your your uh, selective materials, either your P-type or N-type, um, so that either uh, will transport holes or electrons from the electron hole pairs that get generated from the photoelectric effect. Um, so those will sandwich your, what is your active layer, in, which in this case will be the uh, perovskite material. Um, those are typically deposit on a glass substrate that has a transparent conducting oxide. Um, so that is your one of your electrodes. Um, and then on the backside of that is your typically a metal electrode to uh, make your electrical contacts with. But sometimes we can also do a another transparent conducting oxide um, because these are, the entire stack is semi-transparent. Um, that enables kind of two things. Um, you, we can deposit this on top of an existing solar cell, like a silicon solar cell, uh, again, for that tandem um, to take uh, tandem configuration to get the energy captured from the wider wavelength. Or if you have a transparent conducting oxide instead of a metal, you can have a bifacial device. So now we're collecting energy both directly from the sun as well as from ambient light that gets reflected off, you know, uh, just the surrounding environment. Right, uh, right. So that that will be a, a single cell, a single photocell, but typically in the ac actual application, you're going to have a module. So you'll have um, a cell laid out on a, you know, a, a rectangular area and you will have a bunch of these side-by-sides that are interconnected um, to further increase your vo your voltage and your energy gains. Right, right, yeah. And as, is there any sort of um, differences when you're scaling up to these larger modules in the perovskite solar cells, or is it um, relatively similar? So um, there are, there are challenges. Um, so many of, at least at at, uh, at NREL, the device sizes that we are looking at, we are depositing, you know, multiple cells on a 25 by 25 millimeter substrate. So we might have six cells. Each cell has an area of, you know, 0 0.122 centimeters squared. So so pretty small. Uh, we are we are looking to scale up to a 50 by 50 uh, area. Um, but modules, we need to be meter size. Um, and so 
when you go to the module, generally speaking, you will take in a, a hit on efficiency. Um, and that that is related to, you know, many things. Uh, uniformity of the material deposition across the surface of the module, uh, for example, as well as different aspects come into play, like the conductivity of your uh, transport layers and your, your uh, transparent conducting oxides, you know, all come into much more of a play. And beyond that, uh, another challenge that we're running into is in order to fabricate a module and get the, so it's called a monolithic interconnect. So that way, basically, you use a combination of uh, laser scribes to break up the film surface at certain intervals um, and then deposits uh, and, and your deposition steps um, to simplify the mod module fabrication um, process. And those laser scribes can introduce additional defects and problems. Um, so there are uh, a few challenges that need to be addressed uh, before we can actually push this technology towards the, the large area modules where it, it really needs to be uh, for commercial use. Right, right. Are there kind of any other things that you think need to be worked? So you mentioned the stability and those issues there with kind of scaling up to a module. Are there many, well, I'm sure there are things, but are there any other kind of large things that you think need to be overcome to um, reach commercial commercialization? There, there are other challenges that the technology is facing um, beyond just the stability. Uh, so while the processing techniques that, the, that you need to use to fabricate the perovskite solar cells are, are a little bit easier, um, they, depending on what approach you use, they can use a lot of solvents and sometimes a lot of not too friendly solvents. Um, so that is certainly one of the challenges that people are thinking about and, and trying to work around. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, chlorobenzene is one of the solvents that are, um, that's commonly used in the processing set for uh, the perovskite. But you can get away from that, for example, using what's called a nitrogen quench. So, uh, basically, you use it's 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 called an anti solvent. So you use chlorobenzene as an anti solvent to extract the solvents that your perovskite precursors are dissolved in, and remove it and just leave the the perovskite material. Mm -hmm. um, another way you can do this is with a nitrogen quench. So instead of using an anti solvent, you're just blowing nitrogen over the surface, and that uh, increases the drying rate and gets that removal of the precursor solvents for your film formation. Right. Um, so that's just an example of, of something that can be done to reduce the, the actual impact or the, the quantity of solvents being used. Yeah. Um, another challenge and a little bit of an open question is uh, it's still unclear how pure of the precursor materials um, 
we need to use uh, what, what that purity level needs to be and what impacts uh, impurities in our precursor materials might have on our on our final devices. Um, and that's another thing that we're we're currently researching here at Enro. Right, right. Cool. I think um, I think that might be all the questions I had. Is there anything else you wanted to add? No, I I think that's pretty much it. You know, I have I have high hopes for this technology and it, it, it's certainly looking promising. So, you know, I, I hope there's there's interest from, uh, you know, the wider world to to help push this technology forward. Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, it's kind of very recent in its uh, development. And um, these other like silicon technologies had a lot more uh, history and uh, kind of research and development. So hopefully... It can kind of catch up with a little bit more work. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you very much, Rob. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me on the show. And that's all for today's episode with Dr. Robert Turowat. As always, if you enjoyed, remember to share it with your friends and give us a follow and a rating on your podcasting app. That goes a really long way. If you would like to stay updated with future episodes, you can follow me on LinkedIn at Luke Roach or Twitter at Luke J Roach. And I'll try to post on there every couple of weeks when there's a new episode. Thank you for listening. Have a great day.